Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. You've heard it on the podcast so many times and I'm gonna say it again. Relationships are everything in real estate. At Dovehill Capital Management, one of the most interesting things about our track record is that the majority of the deals have come to us off market or lightly marketed. So we had this innovative idea a few years ago, and that was to launch the Deal Rewards Program at Dovehill Capital Management. If you want to learn more, you can go to www.dovehillcoes.com. Again, that's www.dovehillcoes.com. You click on the little Deal Rewards icon and you can sign up. And if you have a deal that's off market, that somehow came to you, maybe you're working on a deal, you're trying to put it together, bring it to us because we can help you get that deal done through our deal rewards program. We offer industry-leading incentives. We'll allow you to co-invest in the deal. We could come up with another interesting structure to allow you to do the deal with us. The deal rewards program is incredibly unique and will give you an opportunity to do a deal with Dove Hill either in a completely passive position, or maybe you're taking a more active role. Either way, please check out the Deal Rewards Program at www.dovehillcoes.com. Appreciate it. And this is how we've been getting our flow. The team at Wurzak Hotel Group is just firing on all cylinders right now. So I'm very, very excited and proud to announce that we now have a third-party management program where we are managing hotels for other owners. We used to just manage hotels for ourselves, and now we've made some tremendous forward investments in people, our team, technology, accounting, finance, and most importantly, culture, and we are prepared to bring that out to everyone. Our team is experienced in managing independent hotels, branded hotels. We have focused heavily on boutique, lifestyle, and experiential hotels, and we're ready to manage a hotel for you. So if you are interested, if you wanna learn more about what we do and how we can help your hotel, please visit wurzakhotels.com. My conversation today is with Jordan Breck, president of MRP Capital Group. These guys are the nation's largest owner of Walmart shadow centers in small town America. Their current Walmart shadow center portfolio is about 2.6 million square feet across 100 properties in 26 states. Now, how did these guys grow so quickly and buy so many properties? It's all because of focus. They have one of the tightest buy boxes I've ever seen. And it's amazing because they utilize data. They utilize very specific demographics to exactly identify which little neighboring strip centers they want to own next to Walmarts. And there's just something so beautiful in that simple strategy. And we go into all of it, how they've grown, how he's raising capital, how he's finding these deals, what are the tips and tricks that he's using to identify which centers are better than others and which Walmarts are better than others. It is an awesome conversation. Please enjoy my chat today with Jordan Breck. I want you to kind of describe how building a real estate company evolves as you're building a real estate company from the early stages. A lot of people that listen to the podcast 
either work for real estate companies that are maybe big institutions or they're entrepreneurs or they want to start their own. But I thought it'd be a cool place to kind of walk through your experience in starting a company and how that's changed over a fairly short amount of time. Yeah, no, it's it's a great question and topic. And so 2015 is when we started this small town Walmart shadow center strategy. And, you know, so we've been a company for almost 13 years. But when we went in on that strategy, it was always about eventually scaling. And I, I mentioned that because early on, I was very focused on preparing for scale and growing the infrastructure in preparation for scale. And, you know, so that we could take on the scale and then be able to, you know, operate efficiently once we had it, you know, as simple as that sounds, right? And in reality, you know, you never know exactly how fast you're going to grow. But I think as we grew and we built an infrastructure and, and different departments and tried to hire for the right people in the right states and the right leadership and the people underneath them, you know, it's a lot of learning exactly what actually it takes to properly set that team up so that they can function the way that, you know, my partner and I think that they'll function. And I think the biggest issue that you'll run into is when you have quick growth, you know, in periods of, of hyper growth, a lot of times people, it's really, are you going to grow with the company or does the company outgrow you? And as we have been managers and, you know, owning this company, we've seen it happen over and over again. And a lot of it was, you know, ignorance from our end. You know, we don't come from corporate backgrounds. We figure this whole thing out. And, you know, the, so the thought process of you need to create this infrastructure that is ready for scale versus everything that actually goes into running a company with 30 plus employees and also working on that scale. It's a whole, whole nother ballgame. It's, and you know, it takes a lot of time spent on the operations of the company where, you know, it's taking away from what you originally did best, but at the same time, it's incredibly important. And so as we have grown and we've had many iterations of what our team looks like, what their responsibilities are, what we do in-house, what we're trying to get better at, you know, leveraging outsourcing and being more efficient. You know, we've learned a ton of things along the way. And, you know, what exactly does a COO do? Do we need a COO? You know, are you hiring somebody that has that experience already and can step in and do it? Or are you hiring somebody that has done everything but that and thinks that they can do it and we believe that they can do it? But once they get in and we continue to grow, really their skill set for what we needed in that position the year before to the year after is totally different. And so it takes a lot of time to make those adjustments while you're also trying to continue to cultivate the talent that you have. And so, you know, in those periods of growth, there's so much more time spent on operating the company than you know, I ever actually anticipated, you know, knowing that that was going to come, but at the same time, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work when you make mistakes and, you know, you have to even implementing a new 
system and getting everybody to buy in. Different departments use the same system in different ways. And if you think it's a six month process, it's actually an 18 month process. And, you know, all the while in the back of your head, you're like, I just want to go buy deals. (laughs) And so it's, you know, it's, it's something that comes with the territory, but you may just not be as prepared as you thought, even though you knew in your head, like, we got to have this infrastructure. That's a lot easier said than done. Why do you think most people don't transition from being a deal shop or a deal guy to actually being a real estate investment company or if you want to be really fancy firm? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of it is, is there's not a right or wrong answer. It's what's best for you and what you're trying to accomplish. A lot of people want to just keep, you know, doing a few deals a year and that's the great lifestyle and career for them and they have the ability to do it. You know, and when you keep it small enough, you're doing all that work yourself, but at the same time, you know, that's that fits what they're trying to do. And maybe a lot of them also probably understand how much goes into it, right? And for us though, and you know, me personally, what my long-term goals are, knowing that we were always going to scale, scale this asset class, which really allows us to then kind of grow complementary businesses and also be able to focus, you know, over the next 20, 30 plus years on certain things that we want to focus on. Building that that company to run the day-to-day of, you know, this strategy or later strategies, wherever it may be, and run it well so that we can keep growing this company in the way that we want to grow it. And then also allow us to eventually take more of a step back to go focus more on exactly what we want to do. When I say we, my partner and I, but I mean, it's pros and cons to both, you know, there's a lot of people that are one, two man shops that, you know, do developments and they're really good at it and they make good money doing it. And they're, they're super happy. You know, for me though, if I have to be in the weeds of everything that we do, like I did 10 plus years ago, that's not fulfilling to me, right? And I'm not trying to just do deals to make money. We're trying to build a true foundation of a company that can then fuel what we're going to be doing for the next, you know, our lifetime and then whatever this company looks like after that. How did you find your way to shadow Walmart strip centers? Yeah, really, really organically. So. The quick background is my first internship after my freshman year of college was at Marcus and Millichap. I was going to school in Chicago, but I came home that summer to St. Louis. It's 2010. So the office was 10% full and my now partner was the only broker in there giving me anything to do. And he found a little niche in selling Dollar Generals nationally. And it was Dollar Generals getting better and better credit. And anyways, found a great you know niche there. And at the end of that summer, he left and started, you know, buying those one at a time. And I stayed in touch with him. And long story short, when I graduated college, I started working for him two days later. And so for the next few years, I was right alongside him going to these really, really, really small towns where we were buying existing dollar generals or, you know, a handful of family dollars and where those properties and those stores were the center of those small rural communities and always on the way there we'd pass through a 
larger small town, the regional regional hub, county seat, university town, always a Walmart, always one or two or three strip shopping centers right next to it or right in front of it that had national credit tenants and also tenants that were more discount or service oriented. And, you know, after driving through however many of those that we did for over the years, it was kind of a natural transition. So when we came to the end of, you know, what we were doing with Dollar Journals, which was blend and extend at the end of the day, and their credit got better and better, cap rates started going down. So on the sell side, we were doing great. On the buy side, the model didn't really work anymore. And also we wanted to make a transition as a business to, you know, buy an asset class and grow a portfolio of properties that do well in a recession, just lower volatility, right? So good or bad economy, they're going to keep, you know, going along. And we had the benefit of really understanding and liking small towns. We saw how it, how they all performed and, and just how the communities kind of performed in smaller markets during the Great Recession. And so we were very familiar with what kind of that asset looked like. We had seen many properties on the market over the years and kind of underwrote a few of them when we were in the kind of that transitional period in between Dollar Generals to Walmart Shadows. And then eventually, you know, it just made so much sense to us that we pulled the trigger on the first one in 2015. That first property was in Waynesboro, Mississippi. And at the time, you know, again, it was just, it was simple for us to understand. And we were so focused on having another very clear niche and which makes it just so much easier to kind of narrow in on exactly what you're doing. It's faster to find deals. It's faster to underwrite deals. And after we bought a few of them, you know, we saw really like the opportunity that there's hundreds at the time, really there's thousands of these exact properties that all have the same fundamentals. And again, we wanted to build a resilient portfolio, get away from having to do deals to make money. So less transaction-based fees, more, you know, recurring revenue and do it with an asset class that we believe during the next downturn would still perform. That's the easiest way to explain how we kind of stumbled into it. What makes for a good shadow strip center investment? What are those characteristics that you're looking at, like if you had a criteria, and I'm sure you do, that you're like just sitting there checking the box and narrowing down the pool of opportunities, what does that look like? Yeah, it always first starts with the market. So we have a very defined box of what our addressable market is. And it has just around over 1,700 Walmart super centers that are in these small towns specifically. So the Walmart has to be 150,000 square feet or larger, has to be owned by Walmart. They need to do in excess of 70 million in sales at least. And, you know, they need to be the, the regional draw, the grocery store of that community. And typically that's our average kind of regional draw is about 65,000 people. So those are the first boxes we check is, does the Walmart do enough in sales? Is it owned by Walmart? Are there enough people going there? And, you know, if we check those boxes, we'll dig into the deal. We will look and we will buy at properties that are 100% leased to completely empty. 
and everywhere in between. So, but kind of down the middle of the, you know, strike zone for us is you got a 30,000 square foot shopping center next to a really high performing Walmart. Walmart does a hundred million dollars and it's 80% leased. Hasn't been painted. Nobody's put on a new roof or taken care of the roof. The parking lot hasn't been sealed and striped. It has primarily like the original tenants in it that, you know, have caps on their cams from 15 years ago and all the rents are undervalued. Listed at a cap rate that we would do knowing that we can do better. Like those are the bread and butter deals. We buy everything as is. So we know exactly how much it's going to, you know, what the roof's going to cost and when it's going to need to go in. If the parking lot needs to be redone, HVAC is this, that, and the other. And at this point, like we know exactly what tenants aren't there that are going to want to be there and what are they going to pay in rent and the work it's going to take to get them in there, both in TI and landlord work. And so we have it down to such a science that when we see that kind of opportunity where it's like, it has upside day one, it has upside through recycling uh, tenants or renegotiating leases and just need some TLC as well. And it's in a market we know everybody or our core tenants are going to want to be. It's, and again, starts with the price that makes sense or is at least in the ballpark where you're not starting 200 basis points lower. I mean, we get, that's what gets us excited. Because you have such a defined market, like there's no variation. Where have you found ways to gain a competitive advantage over other people? Or are a lot of people just not looking at this stuff? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And it's kind of two different ways of looking at it. It's where's our competitive advantage of winning deals? And then where's our competitive advantage of increasing value? And when it comes from winning deals, we have since 2015 gone to every landlord with a portfolio, every tenant, everybody in the country, the brokers, everybody that has any, you know, place in this space and said, we're going to grow the largest portfolio of Walmart shadow centers and small towns that has ever existed. And it was all a theory and a thesis, but we've now been saying that for over nine years. And we have the largest portfolio that in our head has ever existed in this specific niche. And so the competitive advantage, even from the beginning was, this is our strategy. We know that nobody's ever put money into these things. They'll take flat rents. They're not going to do anything that's going to risk losing a tenant. They're happy just making the cash flow and they don't want to, you know, put any more money into it. So from the tenant side, like we've gone into every single one knowing we're going to spend money on this. We're going to put TI in to get the right tenants that are going to be here long term. So from the that side of the business, you know, our tenant relationships help us find deals lease deals before we've closed on the property or even if there's a lease expiring in a year with a tenant that we know that isn't going to be one that we want long-term or isn't going to pay the market rent, we have those tenants ready to backfill them as much as possible. So scale has really gotten us a competitive advantage today now with that aspect of things. You know, for as long as we've been doing it, we see every single deal and most deals we see, we've already seen before. 
So we get off-market deals, we get on-market deals, we get what I would consider locally marketed deals. So they're on the market, but it might be with the local leasing broker and you know they're doing their best, but it's not being seen nationally. And so we see everything all and above. I mean, our database goes back again since we started. You know, any conversation we've ever had with anybody, uh, we buy properties that we've put in offers on three times in six years. But today, the competitive advantage is we are the largest. When we put an as-is offer in today, there's a lot more credibility behind it than when we did it three years ago, five years ago. And we have so much intimate knowledge with not just the property, but also with what we now know with data that we can achieve in value creation and the relationships we have with, you know, how to work with the community, how to work with Walmart. It, all of that together is really like the competitive advantage. And we get asked a lot, why has no one done this before? And the answer is people have done this before. We didn't invent this. I mean, people made astronomical amounts of money developing Walmarts and these strip centers for decades. There were portfolios out there that we've now bought most of the larger ones, but nobody's ever approached it in a way that we've approached it as a totally fresh look of these are so undervalued in really what they can achieve in what market rent really is. I mean, at the bare minimum, right? Like if you approach it as this is the premier shopping center in a community with a draw of 65,000 consistent people, whether it's a suburb of a major metropolitan area, we approach it that way where it's, you need to take care of it. You need to treat it like a class A shopping center. You need to treat it as, you know, with the same national credit tenants that are going into those major metros. It costs money. You need to make it look nice and you need to know how to you really operate those things with, with that context in mind, right? Not a, we're buying something with, you know, an average rent of $9. And if we can get to 10, great, but let's not spend any more money on it. It's the complete opposite approach. And that was our original competitive advantage. I really believe was that mindset and that conviction that we're going, that that opportunity is there and we're going to go achieve it. Today, there's a lot more data and track record to back it up, which is, makes it easier, but that that's really what it comes down to. I don't really ask this question, but your strategy is so data driven. Can you like, just like level stack, give us the stats. How many of these things do you guys own? Like how many transactions do you typically do a year? What was the peak ownership? You say you're the largest. What does that actually mean to kind of let people know what we're talking about? Yeah, it's a great question. And to put it in perspective, our average property is about 27,000 square feet. So 27, 30,000 square feet and our purchase price just under $4 million. So it's a very high volume strategy. And we never wanted to go just buy bigger deals to grow that way. We really wanted to approach this as a strategy of, you know, consolidating a fragmented market. So it has varied over the years, obviously. And we started with syndications and did a handful in the first year and just did more and more each year. But long story short, you know, at our height, we owned a hundred of these. We've this year sold, 
you know, a dozen or so. So our portfolio is a little bit smaller, but the craziest run was really Q1 of 2021 to July, 2022. So about 18 month period, we bought over 70 and that was a wild, wild ride where it also then just came to a screeching halt. In 2023, I think we've bought about four properties and for a variety of reasons. But again, I think that's also one of the biggest barriers of entry in this is it's a totally different animal to not only deal with that amount of volume. Every one of those properties has its own loans. We'll have done over 50 loans this year, refinances, all that kind of stuff. So that sort of volume and, you know, with the saying of it takes just as amount, same amount of work to do one $10 million deal as it does to do $1 million deal is true. But at the same time, if you can build the efficiencies around it, that's kind of the, again, the, the barrier to entry that is a, another competitive advantage of ours, but it's been a, a wild ride and we're gearing up to kind of grow again. And if we buy 30, 40 properties a year for the next five years. I mean, that would be fantastic, but I think we could do more. (laughs) How did you define the criteria? And then what data or efficiencies are you leveraging against that criteria to buy more of these things, make the process more efficient? Yeah, so it, it started with how do you underwrite the small town, right? How do you underwrite the market to make sure it's a good small town? It's a good market. It has enough people going there. And you can't use the traditional 10 mile radius of what that population is. You can't use the population of the city or the county. It just doesn't tell you what you need to know. But the very beginning of the core of it is we want to make sure that we are right next to, again, the high performing Walmart in that area. And that Walmart is also the grocery center. So it is the center of the most densely trafficked area of this region. So in the very beginning, we found a way through some connections we had with some people in Arkansas and found a way to start buying estimated Walmart sales. And that became our market analysis. If Walmart did back then, it was if it did at least 60 million or more, it was a market that we knew the core national tenants would want to go to. That's a big part of this equation too, is all this goes back to efficiency of leasing. And so we work with the same tenants across the country. So if we know they want to go to a market because Walmart does well enough, then we have a you know stable of, of tenants that we know are going to want to be there. And then we want to be the shopping center that they want to go into first. So that was the very beginning. And using that and how we were talking about how do we under, underwrite a market in the early days, you know, Walmart sales was a huge help, but there's a bigger story to tell. And just, you know, when I talk about the addressable market, which we now can define as 1,700 markets, which is roughly 4,500 properties, there's so much more to it now. So we use placer.ai in conjunction with our Walmart sales to really be able to get into a lot more specific data than we had before. So you know, Placer, for those that don't know, tracks cell phone data to provide basically foot traffic information. 
and even in the very beginning of Placer, Walmart as one big giant single tenant essentially building the data worked really well back then. It works very well for a lot more reasons today, but even the very beginning, it allowed us to get accurate information that really paired up with our Walmart sales as well and help us prove prove what we were telling people with more data. So today, that's how we're able to say our average market has 65,000 people coming in that true regional draw. And, you know, it's their placers terminology of the true trade area, but it's the perfect terminology for us because what is the true amount of people that are really coming to this Walmart, to the center of this town to shop? And when you're able to identify that, it allows you to actually really show the bigger opportunity that small towns have that people don't necessarily think about. And allow us to prove what we were saying as a thesis as to a data-backed strategy. So together, I mean, some of the coolest stuff that we can do now is like, we can prove that from our adjustable markets, so the Walmarts and our, the towns that we will go and buy, Walmart does higher volume and higher you know, sales per visit than they do in larger markets. We can prove that there's about 40-something million Americans that are part of our you know, addressable market. And what I really mean by that is, so we have a maximum trade area. We will not buy something that has more than 150, 15,000 people that will go shop there. Because we want to make sure that the Walmart is the center of that community. We're in a community that has a Walmart and several other grocery stores and huge junior box developments. And there's more competition. You lose the fundamentals of what make our property work, which is it's the best shopping center in that town. If there's too much competition, then being in front of the Walmart doesn't necessarily mean that you're the best shopping center in that town. So with that maximum trade area is also kind of how we come up with the data of there's about 40 plus million Americans that live in these markets that are truly independent of being part of a bigger metropolitan area that people don't pay as much attention to and so much more data comes out of that it's just so fascinating to us and that's why i mean in a, in a bigger sense you know I've, I've made a document before calling small town america the the best fragmented opportunity in the united states basically saying like there is a emerging market almost that's been overlooked that's right here in the United States. And it's really going in and understanding what what small towns really had to offer that most people don't think about beyond just what we do. But anyways. So you basically find a monopoly, which the Walmart is the monopoly. They're the only game in town. And then you buy the strip center next to it on the assumption that these people have nowhere to go. And if they don't really build any other supermarkets or places, they're going to have to go to the Walmart and then they're going to go to your place to, I don't know, get a haircut or get a coffee or something like that. Talk to me about the why you care about capping it at a certain amount. The reason we cap it is the correlation really is when you go above that amount, 90 plus percent of the time, when you go and you look at that Walmart and that market, 
it's going to have all that other competition that I talked about. And again, it takes away from the efficiencies of that come from knowing that you're, that we're buying the, sh- the shopping center that is going to be the one that everybody wants to go to first from a tenant perspective. So by capping it, it really kind of eliminates us looking at deals that aren't going to fit the criteria of, again, the property level fundamentals that we're looking for, which goes back to basically like, we want to make sure in a property that we're buying, it's going to be the property that all of our national relationships, that's going to be where they want to be. And also, again, really helps us narrow in on the true addressable market. And the more narrow you can be on your your niche, the easier it is to be the leader in that niche, the easier it is to have a really refined underwriting model, both in the market and, you know, the, the actual property and the investment. And, you know, we don't want to get outside of that because it, it takes away from the really clear focus that we have. Our adjustable market is large enough that there's plenty of opportunities and we don't need to go kind of expand out of that to kind of grow. The weird thing about these markets is they're rural. So there's a lot of land, but no one's really built anything more than the Walmart and the strip center next to it. How do you think about new supply? There's more of it today than there's been. Primarily new supply is a lot of single tenant. You're seeing more junior box centers being built in like some of the bigger, smaller towns that we're in. The majority of the time though, they are across the street or, you know, right in that same corridor. And overall, it's a good thing. There's, there are more retailers growing in small towns than I've seen in my entire career, big and small. And, you know, every once in a while, yeah, there's, in there's certain markets where there's way more grocery competition. The further north you go, you know, Meyer is a lot of times in a market that we would traditionally go to. And that, that, that's a huge comp- competitor for grocery for Walmart and that sort of stuff. But the new supply, generally speaking, again, is is a good thing for us because it's, it's bringing more tenants to the market. We're not getting the competition of the pure strip center right next to the Walmart, primarily because they've all already been built. So you do see two or three tenant strip centers being built, you know, maybe down the road. And a lot of times they're there because they can't come into our center. A vertical that we hope to get into soon is both on, if we have the space on our property to build a pad or, you know, down the road or across the street, you know, tenants that we do a lot of work with across the country that want to be in the market, can't get into our center, or maybe it's a center that we don't own and the seller won't sell you know, asking us basically, can we build for them in, in the small towns? Because that's kind of how our reputation is built is, is we are the guys that do retail in small towns at the end of the day. But the ground component is less of an issue as it would be in a major metro or a larger market because one with Walmart, they have their prototype. They're not building bigger super centers. Especially when we first started doing that, we got doing this, we got that question a lot of what if Walmart leaves and builds a bigger store and they've maxed that out, right? So that's why we have a minimum square footage number 
for how big the Walmart is. Because if it's below that and they are doing really well, there is still a chance that they're going to move. But we've developed a relationship with, you know, some of the real estate team at Walmart and the way they kind of describe it is for the most part, everything's been built. Now we're trying to figure out what to do with what we have around it, right? So sometimes they still own some real estate, some vacant ground, typically pad sites, but, you know, they're not building new super centers and they're not going to come out with a bigger version either. So we're pretty safe there. And for other grocers to come into town, you are, we are seeing it more like Publix is growing a lot. And at the end of the day, yeah, will that take away from some of Walmart's grocery? Absolutely. They still don't have the same draw that the Walmart's going to have. So we're still going to be that number one shopping center in that market. And with Placer, you can actually probably pull up Publix, pull up Walmart, see how they compare and get conviction around your specific site. Yep. I mean, especially as Placer has improved. I mean, I think Placer, Placer along with COVID was one of the best things to happen to retail and most specifically retail in smaller towns. COVID really forced retailers to, and consumers to adopt the omni-channel approach. And by omni-channel, I think it was way more of a keyword kind of comparing it to e-commerce than today where I think it's much more practical use of retailers and consumer behavior. How do you, you need that balance of brick and mortar and online presence. And it's what is, what does it mean for each retailer, but also like the adoption of it, I think has really been super, super helpful for tenants and for retail in general. Then on top of that, like with data that people have today that they didn't have before, I mean, retailers didn't have much more data to go off of in small towns than we did before. Now they can see things totally differently and know they can actually do well in smaller markets, but also in many cases outperform because their costs are much cheaper. And maybe they don't do quite the volume they do in a major metro. If their volume is 20, 30% less, but their cost is less than half, they're going to make more money. So that has been a huge thing the last few years specifically of just, there are a lot more tenants, a lot more national credit tenants, even larger footprint tenants going to smaller markets than I would have anticipated. So that's been a really kind of great thing to see. I wish it was, I wish I could say it's just because of what we're doing in small towns, but I mean, retail in general has been doing really well the last few years. Because your scope is so defined, how have you figured out how to optimize the acquisition process? Like, I feel like since you have it so nailed down, you could just hire a bunch of college kids and give them like 10 grand if they sign a contract and just have them call all these places nonstop because they're probably mom and pop sellers for the most part. Like, what have you done to ensure that you're getting these deals, spending not an ordinary amount of time on it, and then closing them once you have them? Today, the biggest resource that we have is our database and relationships we've built over the last nine years. So we have a very thorough database of, you know, hundreds of true deals that we have looked at, worked on before, you know, had actual offers, whatever it may be. And we can go back and look and see, okay, what happened last time? Or why didn't we want to put an offer in last time? So we have a really thorough database of those actual deals. 
but also we know every single portfolio and the history behind them. Most of the time when their debt's coming due, what kind of debt they have, what their motivation is. Two two big portfolios that we've bought, you know, four or five years ago, we we met with all of them. We would say, hey, we're going to grow this bigger than anybody's ever done it before and we want to buy your portfolio. And they are all like, oh, I mean, we love the strategy. It's a great, you know, little piece of what we do. And, you know, we always thought that somebody, some big institution would come and kind of consolidate us together. And we were basically like, well, I guess that's going to be us. <laughs> and, uh, but you multiply that over every single guy that owns one, two, three of these broker relationships are huge. I mean, if there is a shopping center next to a Walmart in a small town that we don't see, there's something wrong. And we do have somebody in house that is still kind of out pounding the pavement. I feel bad for him because every deal he tries to find, we did close one is, you know, pricing isn't quite there yet, but we're, we're definitely seeing more things come back. But, you know, when it comes to scale and how do we make sure that that pipeline is in place, it is a combination of one one at a time acquisitions and 10, 15, 20 property portfolios and balancing the timing and again, the history behind those and what are the motivation of those sellers and and being in front of those those conversations and, and again, building off of our reputation as well. So if we have never had enough equity for the pipeline that we've had ever. And so as much of all this makes sense as far as how efficient it is and especially the economies of scale and how the, how that relates to efficiency as well, it still comes back to, can we raise enough money to grow this as, as large as we are capable of growing it? And that has just been a consistent evolution and puzzle to figure out in every stage. It's a different equation. It's a whole different type of investor group. It's a whole different structure. It's you know, it's some of the most exciting and horrible stress at the same time of, you know, every time we raise money, it's the most money we've ever tried to raise. And again, it's, we are fortunate that we've had the pipeline, but it is a unique type of stress to kind of know what we can go get done and be like, all right, now how are we going to raise the money? <laughs> so I was at a dinner with a friend of mine who's a famous real estate investor. And his friend, who's a hedge fund manager, one of the most famous guys out there. And I was sitting next to him and we were talking and I was describing my business. And he asked me, he's like, so how big do you want to get? And I was like, holy shit, maybe this guy will back me. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> what am I going to say? So now I'm going to ask you, like, how big do you want to grow this business? What's your goal? Yeah, it's a great question. And I answer it you know, the way I would answer is definitely different than the way my partner would answer it. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, we are aligned in overall what we're trying to accomplish, but there's what, what are we trying to accomplish with Walmart shadow centers? The number there for, you know, the minimum, I believe that the portfolio value needs to be is a billion dollars. And that number comes specifically with getting this this asset class to a size that is now large enough to be seen by investors, exit partners, large lenders, whatever it may be, 
that wouldn't otherwise look at this and not just be beholden to a more traditional real estate exit. Really, it's a framing of this this strategy as more than a you know portfolio of, of retail properties. It's a now you know institutional sized consolidation again of a fragmented market if you kind of put your private equity hat on. And so the point of getting to that size is to basically give us the most options of what that sort of capitalization event could look like. And genuinely, if it was just my money and my partner's money, we would own these forever. And I think there are a lot of ways that we can accomplish, you know, some version of that. But again, that size for this portfolio is what gives us the most options of what a capitalization event could look like. As far as the company, we are not a company that has a goal of being just let's raise as much money as possible to deploy in as many different things as possible and just be asset managers genuinely not something we have any desire to pursue for that purpose alone. What we want to be able to do is go in and and always find strategies that make sense to us that can have, you know, we we can find a competitive advantage with and be a true investment company. We will always raise money from other people for the most part, but it's not just for the sake of raising money. You know, we're not just going to go do grocery anchor because it's, you know, easy to recognize and people understand it and it's easier to raise money with and just kind of grow AUM for the sake of growing AUM. That is not what we're trying to accomplish. What we really want to accomplish is having the freedom to go pursue strategies, both professionally and, you know, personally, that are exciting to us, that we can make an impact with, that, you know, complement what we do already and, and really build off the platform that we've built with really Walmart Shadow Centers, which is a large portfolio that we of cash flowing assets that we believe have decades of runway to continue to be resilient sources of cash flow that can help us, you know, do the, the do complementary things and other things that make sense, you know, with what our company does. I want to talk about the offshoots, but before we get there, can you hang on why a big institution or a REIT is really interested in buying something that's like fucking impossible to put together because you (laughs) got to buy a hundred, four million dollar things and go to all these markets that are paying the ass to get to and no one wants to get there. Like, can you talk about if you somehow figure out how to get this big bucket of those things that are really hard to put in a bucket, why that would be valuable? That's a great question. And it's a, it's a theory at this point, right? But what I always liken it to and how I view it is there are so many private equity strategies that are exciting to large private equity companies because of the fact that they are fragmented industries that are, you know, small companies that you cobble together that are somewhat mismanaged or could gain more efficiencies and profitability through consolidation and efficiencies across the board. And the irony to me is that that is what everybody's looking for. Like they get so excited when they hear that, oh, you're going to buy 
one and two million dollar veterinary clinics across the country and put your you know name on it and professionalize it and increase your you know EBITDA twenty percent a year blah 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 and now you've got a thousand and we can continue to grow that and do three thousand more that's amazing and to me it's the exact same thing that's exactly what we're doing the product and the strategy is a real it's real estate it's shopping centers but the uniqueness of of our strategy and when again telling the story around it and kind of framing it in the right way of it's not just that we're buying shopping centers it's not just that we're buying them next to walmarts and it's not just that we know how to add value to those with scale it's also we've now proven and unlocked basically this huge addressable market of this hugely undervalued asset class that we now have really kind of down to a science shown how we can add value and also been able to prove that the fundamentals even of the markets are significantly better than people would think like going back to like walmart's performance in these markets versus you know larger markets you know says everything you really need to know but you got to get it to a certain size that again, gets you into that conversation and frame it in the way of, again, we're not doing just another real estate strategy. Our goal isn't purely, let's just grow it and then sell to a larger real estate company. That may be an exit, but that's not, that's not the point. And a lot of that comes down to just framing what we're really doing and telling the story beyond just how we add value to our real estate. You know, it's, it's the bigger picture of all of it. And then also when you get to that point too, it's, it's, if we have 300 properties, I believe that puts us at about five to 6% of, of our addressable market. So when you add that equation to, we could grow this significantly larger, right? There's so much more room to grow. You've proven it. You've consolidated it where there is no chance anybody could catch up ever to that kind of size and like compete with you at that scale. And on top of that, it's, we can grow it as much as you want to grow it. All that together is really kind of the story we're going to tell three, four or five years from now. What are some of the other strategies or real estate ideas you've identified by being in these markets seeing the data, whether it's Placer or Walmart sales, that you're thinking of like, oh yeah, we could just go do that too and be super hyper-focused about that strategy and it's adjacent to the one we're already doing. Yeah, there's some really practical real estate ones and there's some more you know, not real estate related that I think are super interesting. You know, one is obviously just as an example, we're seeing more and more as people that understand small towns and have the ability to do high volume, smaller transactions. You know, we've talked to companies that, you know, have really small last mile distribution centers in small markets and we're approached by them of, you know, we want to build a bunch of these across the country. Our traditional developers, you know, just can't make sense out of doing these smaller deals in smaller markets versus, you know, doing the larger ones we do with them in the, in the major metros that they're based. 
And so like just kind of that, using that as an example of we're more experts in how to do deals in small towns and also high volume, smaller, smaller price point investments. So whether it is ground up development of a single two, three tenant building, or even if it's not retail and it's more of a last mile distribution, you know, that's one, one way that, that is a separation of us versus other companies that doesn't need to necessarily translate just purely to, you know, retail investing. And a lot of the ways that I look at it is then there's, you know, there's complementary businesses to really add into the portfolio and the platform that we have. So it could be anything from, you know, what are like, for example, like uh, there's ancillary income that we put into our properties, fireworks stands. There's a company that will do weekend selling meats, two-day lease in our parking lots all across the country, you know, recycling bins, this, that, and the other. So like kind of looking at it as what are all these like components, whether it's, you know, operations of how to manage smaller properties in small towns across the country, you know, what doesn't exist that maybe we could do because we know how to do it and we could do it for other people potentially, or what third parties are we using that we could actually start doing ourselves just across our portfolio. There's a lot of sort of just complementary complementary businesses that could just be implemented into kind of the basis of our portfolio. And so you kind of, you go find an expert, maybe they have a smaller business and you buy or partner with them and then you can immediately deploy them across, you know, our, our portfolio and then grow it from there. I mean, that's kind of private equity 101, <laughs> but it's more about just how interesting that kind of stuff is. And again, so that's why I always call the Walmart shadows strategy a platform because what we can build off of the properties we own, but also just our knowledge and experience and working in small towns and knowing what goes into it. Honestly, there's just endless opportunities there that we're pretty eager to get going on. And one other thing is kind of just, I see a lot and I pay attention to a lot of things about what do small towns not necessarily get access to that larger markets do? So like a huge growth tenant for us are wireless companies. So T-Mobile, AT&T, Verizon. Small towns do for the most part have no fiber internet. And they're most likely never going to get fiber because it's so expensive to put in. There, There are companies that go into rural communities and try to put in fiber, very cost intensive and also a lot of times gets outdated in a, you know, a couple of years. And so those wireless companies are all super aggressive about small markets because what they're really selling right now more than anything is, you know, 5G Wi-Fi. And, you know, so I, this is a funny story, but there was a few month period where I was like, I learned about small cell towers. Crown, uh, one of the largest. Yeah. Yeah. They have a great, you know, explanation of what small cells, what small cell towers are. And so I was trying to do some research and, you know, educate myself and like, could that be a solution for small towns? If you had small cell towers that could properly distribute, you know, 5G data from the tower 
more appropriately across town, could that be a really great solution that we could go and scale in smaller markets that, again, like even a crown wouldn't want to go do because it's so much work. And so we actually had a meeting at uh, T-Mobile headquarters, their real estate headquarters in outside Dallas. And I was so excited to ask the question. I was just like, you guys think this would be a good idea? Like if you guys had this, would it solve a lot of the issues you're trying to solve in small towns? Because the like consumers in small towns, basically 5G Wi-Fi is essentially taking the 5G signal and, you know, your Wi-Fi hotspots throughout your house. That's really just using data. And that still is not a great long-term solution because if they're... Well, now you have Starlink. That's what he just told me. He goes, did you see the... Did you see the headline this morning? I was like, no, what? He goes, oh yeah, Elon Musk and our CEO were just on stage announcing their partnership. So he's like, I probably wouldn't spend much time on that. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> well, that's good insight. That off the list. <laughs> but in, I, I, I got to feel like there's... You know, this is a bad example, maybe in these rural small towns, everyone's driving pickup trucks today, but like even Tesla superchargers or using pad sites, like if you had a company that wanted to open up a hundred stores of a new coffee shop, you could be like, hey, what's up? I have a hundred little rural sites that you could pad out and just blow it up. That's exactly it. I mean, that's, that's. A way simpler way of explaining it than I was just explaining it. But I mean, even even that is what we're already now doing with just normal tenants. When I say normal tenants, like tenants that are that go into the shopping centers from even just filling vacancies. It's shocking to me, honestly, to realize when we're told that we're a top ten or top twenty landlord or some of the biggest retailers that you would know, just because everything is actually so fragmented. You just wouldn't think, but like even some of the biggest landlords of retail may have 150 locations of one of these large tenants. And so if we have 40, that's actually a lot, you know? So anyways, but the more that we go and we meet with them and we really build the relationship with those tenants, you know, some of them now call us or they'll see a shopping center next to Walmart. Oh, that's an MRP property. And so anyways, so using that as an example, like, there truly is a list that we'll get from certain tenants of here are the markets we need to get into. And can you help us with any of these? Or if you're not there, like, can we start developing? And so the development piece has really just kind of been put on hold because of the environment the last 18 months. And we don't want to just start doing it really at scale without, you know, the right timing and the right experts on board with us to, to do that. But I mean, that's a natural kind of expansion for us. But, but like you said, I mean, there's the, you know, kiosk coffee shops of the world that we could go in and be like, okay, you're going to grow in Ohio. Well, we can help you grow in 10 new locations. And there's so many opportunities like that. And we've explored it too with uh, charging stations. What was one of the biggest mistakes you've made, whether it was growing the business or investing in real estate? When you think back of like, a big screw up. What was that? I was actually thinking about that before this and we've made plenty and plenty of mistakes. What I go back and think about today of what was a mistake versus how well did we adapt to something that didn't work out the way we thought? I think there's way more instances of that, but you know, uh, here's like, here's a early one, right? So lesson that we learned early on, we would do individual syndications. 
if we got it wrong when it came to how long a roof is going to last and we didn't raise enough equity in the beginning to put in reserves to replace a roof and redo the parking lot and everything we did. And all of a sudden we thought it was six years out and now it's one year out. Handful of those earlier syndications, when that happened and all of a sudden we didn't have enough money to do everything we were going to do and now we have a big roof to replace, we just paid out of our pocket. So learning from that, then we went to the full opposite spectrum. We would over-raise equity. We would put on new roofs earlier than we needed to. And you know, today we're way finding more of that balance of you don't need to over-raise or do it right out of the gate, but also make sure there's enough there for the you know, the ones that might pop up you didn't expect. But one of the biggest mistakes I made personally was going back to the start of this conversation when it comes to growing the business and not putting in specific processes early enough and not doing enough to make sure that we were training and cultivating the talent that we had to help them grow with us because the pain that we experienced with turnover, both with people who had left and people, you know, we had let go for certain reasons, all of that together to be, you know, every six, 18 months feeling like, okay, now we're trying it from scratch again, you know, implementing processes again and not sticking in that sort of stuff. The amount of time spent on those mistakes and learning how to run a company and manage employees and manage a team the right way probably has the if you had to put a number to it and time and brain power to it, by far be the most expensive mistake we've ever made. But again, it's just, you know, it's how you learn. I've hesitated on like some of the biggest mistakes because there's been costly things that we've done that I truly don't look at as a mistake, but more as of something that we believe was the right course of action. And when we recognized it wasn't, we switched gears. And there's a lot of examples of that. You know, a really painful experience was, you know, at the end of 2022, we terminated a uh, portfolio of over 30 properties that we were buying. And we were very conscious. We were under contract for almost a year. We couldn't close until after, you know, a certain date. And so that really started when interest rates really started going up. And obviously we discussed internally, we discussed with our investors just along the way, oh, does it make sense to terminate now or does it make sense to terminate now? We were so hands-on in the leasing that we were still increasing NOI at a faster pace than interest rates were increasing. And I think really kind of where, where we ended up terminating that portfolio, which cost us and investors a significant amount of money it actually more came down to lenders being at a point where them closing became unreliable. Equity that we had been working on started to fizzle because we were now, what, six months into kind of this crazy rate hike environment. And so I think you could easily look at that and be like, that was a mistake. We should have terminated it sooner. But at the same time, 
we were very cognizant of we are crushing the leasing on this while we're under contract and it's not getting outside of where the rates are like that kind of spread. And so it wasn't like we were just ignorant, not paying attention. It was just, that was all making sense. Things were lining up. And then just at the very end, it was like, basically the decision was, do we extend again, put up more earnest money and get this closed or cut our losses knowing that we could be in the same spot three months from now, cost us more money, cost us time that we could be focusing on other things. And so that we eventually made the decision of let's just kill this deal, take the loss we already have, move on. So again, it was, it was a lot of things that came together of it had a bad net result, especially financially and, and the time that we put into it. I do think we'll buy that portfolio sometime in the near future. But, uh, you know, that's a, not a fun thing to go and tell everybody about. And, you know, it still gets brought up today and it's like, yeah, wish that turned out differently, but I can genuinely sit here and say, I know, I don't feel like at any point we had made a mistake in the decisions we were making along the way. We full heartedly believe that this was the best thing to be doing for our investors and for that portfolio. And we got to the point where we were starting to realize this could just keep dragging on and get worse. We switched gears, we made a decision and it, and it was an expensive one and it, and, but never at any point, even at that point, did we feel that we had not done the right thing along the way. If that makes sense. How do you? figure out the right culture to have at your company and how do you know whether someone fits that culture or not? I mean, that's a tough question because it's, you know, it feels simple at the same time. It's just, it's almost something you can't really define. Most of the, like the biggest culture misfits, I guess is the way you would say people that did not fit the culture. It just is so apparent, right? When they get in, you know, they've acclimated enough where that kind of period of the benefit of the doubt kind of goes away. It just is so palpable to everybody, right? Like they just don't fit this culture. And, but the way, I mean, the way I describe our culture is a culture of respect. And what I mean by that is as owners of the company, we give a lot of, you know, freedom and, you know, we're not micromanagers and we give a lot of autonomy over our employees, leaders, and how they manage their employees, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we had no, we'd unlimited PTO way before COVID and remote work and all that kind of stuff wasn't nearly utilized the way it is now. But what I mean by a culture of respect is like, of course, have that freedom, you know, go to your doctor's appointment, go to your kid's sporting events, what, like live your life. But um, the respect back from them is making sure that, you know, they're getting their work done, however it needs to get done and providing their, you know, what's expected out of them for the company. And we don't need to have any of that sort of micromanagement or, you know, okay, here's your second strike kind of thing. It's never as simple as that, but that's at the root of it. It just kind of how it plays out and how it really ends up happening every single time is just kind of the people that are abusing it or, you know, just clearly don't kind of mesh with the culture 
in our culture has a lot of, we're an entrepreneurial company. We're still kind of a startup in so many ways and there's constant change and there's always things that maybe aren't in your job description or maybe aren't super processed out like a bigger company may have. And sometimes that just doesn't fit with people. Not that it's wrong from their perspective, but it just, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. So it's, you know, it's a very entrepreneurial culture and vibe. And like the exciting thing for me today is even, even with how many younger leaders that we have, there's such a sense of everyone wanting to continue to make our company more professionally run, you know, add layers of structure and, you know, a little bit more corporate, but really work together to like, let's make credit processes. Let's work together. Let's communicate and engage together and figure it out together than just more of sitting back and being like, well, this department isn't utilizing this software the way that they're supposed to. So I guess that doesn't really mean I should either. So like, that's super exciting. And it's always great to also like come in, have a check-in with everybody and see what things already been done and they're already communicating together. And so that's the type of culture that we're trying to to build off of is really just that buy-in and, you know, the brain power and the sort of the functionality of people think that really work well with a consistently growing, changing company. I'm reading uh, No Rules Rules, which is the Reed Hastings book. And they have in their company, they've had it for a long time, I guess a no PTO policy, policy, which means you could kind of just take as much PTO as you want. Can you talk about that process in your company and why you guys don't have it and how it's working and how you've figured out how to make it work for you? Or yeah. why it's not working. I haven't, it's figured, not. I haven't figured out anything. <laughs> I'm always figuring it out. But every time it becomes a problem, every time there's someone or a handful of people that may be abusing it, and we have a conversation around, do we need to implement something more structured and you know get away from unlimited PTO? Every time we do that, we come across the names of the people that do it the right way. And we're like, we do not want to take that away from those people because some people are not following it the way that should be followed. So in those instances, we always come back around to going back to the leaders of those departments, of all departments and being like, make sure that, you know, you and your team are communicating about when they are going to be working from home, when they are going to be PTO and just have communication around making sure that you're not all gone one week, right? Like for some reason, all of the counting ends up being gone, right? And it's like communicate within your team ahead of time and also just be up to date. Like if you are working from home, like make sure that's on the calendar versus PTO or out of office, because if we don't know, people are going to reach out. But if you're actually on vacation, we're not going to reach out to you. So it just always kind of comes back to just reiterating sort of communication and following it the right way. And the more clarity also that we can bring around people's roles and responsibilities, the easier it is to know if they're doing their job or not. We don't want anybody working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, you know, because of inefficiencies within the company, right? So 
it's one week somebody's working 30 and the next week it's 50, but they're getting their job done. That's all we need to know, right? And so the more clarity there is around that, which is always something we can improve on, that is how I think you kind of solve the uncertainty of are people doing their job or not, whether they're in the office or not in the office. How do you know if it's not, well, you know if it's not working, that's obvious, but then what do you do about it? Because you're like, well, we don't have a PTO, PTO policy, but you're clearly abusing the policy that we don't have. So see you later, you're gone. But I would guess if they're abusing it, they probably, they just suck at their job too, because they're probably not doing other things great as well. Yeah. And that's kind of why I always go back to like, if they're, responsibilities aren't clearly written. That's the first step. Make sure that their role is super clear to them and what they need to do and what their deadlines are for certain things are super clear. Because if it's not, then how are they really supposed to know what's, you know, allowed, right? Once that's in place, the conversation is way less about you're taking too much PTO it's more about you're not doing your job. So are you taking too much PTO? Are you not really working from home when you say you're working from home? So it's less about the policy and more about are you doing your job? Way easier said than done. But that's logically, that's how I think about it. Because just getting rid of it or making people have to really keep their time and that sort of stuff isn't solving the underlying problem. And it's only disrupting the employees that are really great that really appreciate that flexibility. So that's, that's my approach to it. High level. How do you build a culture with people that aren't working in the office and what are the things that you guys do to bring people together? So all of our employees work in the office and Today, that's not a conscious choice. The last couple of years, we've, we've really explored whether it's opening a second office or having more remote people. And it is 100% going to be part of our near future because both from just where our portfolio is nationally and also, you know, wanting to attract talent from certain cities that really have a great you know, depth of that talent. So it's something I haven't had to really experience yet, but I've thought a lot about because we've explored it a lot. And a lot of it, I think is, I guess my biggest, my biggest apprehension is just the initial culture, right? So if, if it's especially from more of a senior or a management position role, how do you get them into the culture at first. And then, you know, it's a lot easier then for them to be more remote once they've already kind of acclimated to the people there. That's the part where, what is that kind of like onboarding experience look like, especially in the beginning where it might be one person versus, you know, starting more of an actual like separate office down the road. But I think that's the, that's the key to me is just, you have to have personal in-person interactions, especially heavier in the beginning to, I think, understand the company, understand the culture, especially understand your team. And then once that's more cultivated, it's a lot easier to then be able to 
move remote and have some uh, continuity and relationships with the people you're working with every day. I want to kind of close with how you raise capital and how that's changed throughout the company's lifetime and maybe where you're really leaning in on, like where you think the future of your capital raising efforts is going to go. Yeah, it's a always been an evolution. So we started genuinely both in Dollar Generals and also even when we started Walmart Shadow Centers, individual syndications, $10,000 minimums. My partner and I do not come from you know wealthy families. We don't come from corporate backgrounds. We had no idea what we were doing. And obviously he taught me from what he was learning himself, but $10,000 minimums and just passing the hat around every time we had a deal. And so, you know, with the shopping centers, that equity raise was bigger every single time and, you know, still kept the $10,000 minimums, but there was always kind of an evolution of trying to get larger investors. And then it was really kind of starting in 2018 when we were doing either larger transactions and larger portfolios and that sort of stuff where we started to really get into exploring other ways to raise money. We've done it a whole lot of different ways. Um, you know, so we went from syndications to a, we, to a fund structure and a big part of that decision was way more about efficiencies than raising money from different types of people. With our unique strategy, we want to own properties that could be 100% leased or, you know, completely empty. They all make money in different ways, but when they're together, you can do a lot more of those deep value add deals than you can just if they're on their own. And on the flip side, you can buy really great properties that may be more stabilized, but still have a ton of value to add over five years. It's just a slower access to that value add. That was the first and primary reason why we wanted to do more of a fund structure than continue to do syndications, which is to get that efficiency. But with that came, obviously, we need to raise more money. And so it's getting more out there and and aggressively expanding our network of high net worth investors. We experimented with a, you know, a group that more of a fund of funds. Two weeks before one of our biggest closings in that fund, they had not raised any money and we had to get really creative and raise seven and a half million dollars in two weeks. Wow. That was an interesting experience. It worked out for investors. You know, we increased the pref and got creative. And, you know, I, I had some good mentors that kind of helped me think through what you need to do to get that done. But what was that? What'd you do? We increased the pref and then we basically came out also with a convertible note with a higher rate. And basically we knew we knew the portfolio could support it all. And ironically, the convertible note versus equity, although it's more expensive up front, full cycle paying those off is a lot higher return for the equity invested, right? And of so, course, if you can pay it off. Right. So that kind less of equity. You know, in the beginning, obviously paying really high amounts of interest to both pref partners and convertible notes is a lot, but at the end of the day, when you execute in the full cycle, it's why we did it in the first place. But we put our back against the walls a lot of times. And then we started really getting more into 
family offices and we've had great experiences with family offices. Some that have come in and, you know, we negotiated or we're negotiating them being a larger anchor in the next vehicle. And, but, you know, maybe it was a different structure than we really wanted to go down. And so we explored other ways, but, you know, every single time it's been finding the right group that wants to be an anchor in a structure that we believe is the most conducive to what we're trying to get accomplished, but also kind of fits what they're trying to accomplish as well. My biggest thing I think that, you know, and where we are today and how we think about it going forward is one, we've gotten to the scale that I call the inflection point, right? So going back to the, the how we want to have our business structured and our, our the strategy of our actual business of being less transaction fee-based, more residual income, and the economies of scale that kind of come with that. Like that's the inflection point that I talk about. So the amount of properties we own, even though they're still in some old syndications in a fund and now in this private REIT that we is our most recent vehicle and our active vehicle, it's we're at that inflection point, which is great. But you always got to look at what's realistic today, what's changed, and what are we trying to accomplish in the future, and what is achievable. And what I mean by that is, like we were talking about, you know, how much we buy in a year, right? And I was telling you at lunch, it feels like we're, you know, in a bumper car course, right? Like moving forward, then you get hit and you stop or you get sidelined, then you start going again. And so like the last year, going from a 18 month period of buying over 70 properties with even more under contract to we've bought three or four properties in the last year all that in consideration to, you know, how we structured our reading to be in the beginning to really how it functions today in this environment and looking forward to how much money do we really need to raise over the next few years to kind of get to that few hundred properties, billion dollar kind of valuation in five or so years. And, you know, getting to the point is really, we've been cultivating relationships with larger family offices, institutions for years and years, because you got to start five years ago. They have to watch you and you can't ask them for money back then. And you got to just go into it knowing that you got to keep them updated, keep the relationship going, see them every once in a while and, you know, let them know what you're up to. And, you know, that's how you start building that trust. And so for the past year or so, you know, we've been looking at bringing those types of investors in, but where we are today is We've been patient this year in one, knowing that we do need to have some sort of restructure in this vehicle to fit the reality of the capital markets of where we are today and where we believe we'll be in the next few years and really understand the investors that both fit the profile of what our return structure and our strategy is going to look like on top of who is actually going to be active, right? If we were just like, we got to go find one big institution for the ones that may be actually making an investment, which is not many, they're all looking for massive discounts, huge, you know, whether it's devaluing the current portfolio or this, that, and the other, which we don't need, or, you know, they also want to buy half the company and all this, that, and the other, right? So like you can start, I've been out kind of the last few months taking the spectrum of what could be a, you know, strategic investor and narrowing it in on its 
it's a combination of what is the world look like today? What do those different investors profiles look like today? And what they may look like over the next couple of years and narrowing it down to what fits what we're trying to accomplish and what's realistic. And then with LPs going forward, it's, you know, in my opinion, for what we do today and, and the amount of money we need to raise over the next few years, we're very structured in a way that is most geared towards that traditional high net worth investor. And in reality, for the amount of money that we need to raise and where the markets are today, it's not a reliable source of new equity alone to kind of build our strategy off of. So we know we need to make some adjustments there. So it's more about finding, you know, with the right, you know, strategic partners and anchors on the front end kind of help create that restructured vehicle that caters to investors that again, fit our profile. And I think it'll be a lot more, you know, there'll be high net worth investors, but also, you know, the right family offices and pension funds and people that we're not asking for 20, $30 million checks from, but for people that, you know, like the combination of current cash flow and also a clear way to make a good return and a clear path to make a great return. So low downs, low risk on the downside, but a lot of opportunity on the upside and, you know, kind of be part of what I think is the most opportunistic period for us to execute on this strategy, which is the next few years where I think we'll have the most, the most opportunities at the best prices we've seen in kind of the course of this whole strategy. But um, anyways, I rambled there for a bit, but the lesson that I have learned over the years is you don't have to rush it. You don't have to fully just fit a model that everyone's telling you you need to be. But at the same time, we don't need to make it more complicated than it needs to be. And we've done all those things in the past. And so now it's really okay. We know we just need to go execute for a few years. We know that there's the right capital out there for us to go do that with. So let's let's find that blend of what our structure needs to look like to just be able to go and raise that money. And we have never, ever, ever had equity lined up to draw on. It's always been deployed the second we've got it in the door. And so that's a part of it as well is really like making sure that we go in with the right investors, kind of have that ability to kind of provide us that efficiency to go take advantage of what will be the most, I think, exciting few years for us to grow the strategy. Jordan, I asked all the guests on the podcast the same closing question. That's what's your favorite hotel? What is my favorite hotel? Honestly, I think it's the it's the, the St. Regis in Aspen. And there's more sentimental value to that than just how great that hotel is. My wife and I got married in Aspen and you know it's an amazing hotel, obviously, but we spent so much time going there, not just for our wedding, but just Aspen has no other meaning to us other than that's where we really met and we like to go there. We don't have any family ties there or anything like that, but the St. Regis specifically is just where we love to stay and runner up would be Esperanza and Cabo. Great. Two choices. (laughs) Aspen's a home run. One of my favorite towns as well. 
Actually, interesting story about the St. Regis. I don't know if you know this, but they tried to take the St. Regis public, just one asset in like a REIT model type of deal and sell shares. And can't remember if it worked or didn't work, but it's an interesting story. Just that St. Regis? Just that one asset. Interesting. Yep. That is very interesting. <laughs> so you could have bought it. Yeah, there you Maybe go. Maybe you can still buy it. I forget what happened, but... Thanks for coming on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having me. It was it was great conversation. Great getting to know you. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.